I've got breaking news for you this morning, something that some of you maybe have never heard before, so I want to really bring you up to speed and want you not to forget this, because this is vitally important, a life lesson for you this morning. Three simple words, rust destroys stuff. Not sure if you were aware of that or not, but wanted to let you know this morning that rust destroys stuff. You let water sit on something too long, you let sand or gravel sit on something too long, it's destroyed after a while. Everything and anything will basically rust away. I was reminded of this when I was younger and my grandfather was teaching me how to wash a car. You might think, well, why do you need to be taught how to wash a car? That's pretty simple. I thought washing a car was pretty simple too until my grandfather taught me how to wash a car. I thought the point of washing a car was get it clean so no one thinks you're driving around with a dirty car. But the point of washing a car is to keep a car in good condition so it lasts a long time. My grandfather was pretty meticulous about he washed a car. He brought it in, washed it all up. I thought we were done. And then he says, nope, you've got to open every single door. So you'd open up every door in the car and then you'd open up the trunk on the car. And then he'd take the hose and he'd adjust the nozzle a little bit or just had a little stream coming out of it and then he'd go along the bottom of the door and right inside the door where that connected. All of the doors and then the trunk. And I thought, well, that's pretty simple. Shut the doors. You don't shut the doors. You dry the doors with a towel. Very meticulously dry the doors with a towel. I thought, what in the world? It's a lot easier just to drive through the car wash at the gas station. But the car wash at the gas station doesn't stop the car from rusting because you're not attacking the spots that bring on the rust the fastest. You see, you have to be disciplined every time you wash the car to go through that little meticulous thing. And not only that, but add that we live in South Dakota, or at that time lived in Minnesota. There's something called snow, which leads to sanding on the roads. We've got a little different situation that what? Rust even comes faster. So it's that much more important to what? Be disciplined in how you wash the car. Well, we can go home now. I think you all got the point. Rust destroys stuff. But we're here this morning to talk a lot more than just about stuff. I, I think that you come here, hope you come here every Sunday, not to talk about stuff, but to talk about something that's a lot more than stuff something that has eternal value, something that doesn't rust, but can be destroyed. We come every Sunday to talk about our soul. When we gather here to talk about our soul, we're not just talking about this thing that's inside of a physical body. That's not the soul according to the Bible. We don't have our bodies and our souls. The soul is our whole being of who we are. So you have your mind, you have your physical body, and then you have your soul, which is your whole being, your mind and your body, sometimes referred to in Scripture as spirit or heart. But your soul is everything that you are. It's your being. And God cares about our being. And today, we hear a warning from Jesus about that which destroys our soul. A warning that oftentimes we ignore. A warning that's absolutely horrible to have to talk about. 
greed. Jesus is approached by a man in the crowd, and the crowd man says to him, Hey, I've got an inheritance coming. Could you maybe help me divide this with my siblings? And Jesus then turns and says, Here's a fair warning for you. Be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness or greed, basically, the same word. Be on your guard against an inner desire to want more and more and more because it will destroy your soul. This morning, we want to take some time and talk about this warning from Jesus. A warning that's really difficult to talk about because I'm about 100% certain that none of us would walk in here this morning and say, I need that warning right now. You see, we listen to the story that Jesus tells. Jesus tells the story of a farmer, a farmer who had a great crop. The crop was coming in. He's like, I'm running out of space. So what does the farmer do? Build bigger barns. And he continues to run out of space. So what do you do? Build more barns. Farmer gets all of this stuff, and then the farmer says, oh, now I can rest and be merry. I don't have to do anything. Jesus tells that story of the man, and, and we hear that story, and I would contend this morning that most of us, we don't relate to that farmer in the story. We don't see ourselves as that farmer because we're going, Phew, I can't just rest and say, be merry. Got to keep working. Got to keep going. So we don't relate to the man. So therefore, sometimes then what? We say, the warning doesn't apply to us. There's another story in the Bible that's really common. A woman comes to Jesus. The woman comes to Jesus and everybody's like, hey, Jesus, do you know who this woman is that's washing your feet? This woman is really dirty. She's a sinner. She does bad stuff in society. And Jesus lets her wash her feet. And then Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. Thank you for loving me. You know, when we tell that story, everybody's like, I've been like that woman. I know what it's like to be unworthy. I've felt unworthy at times. And so we put ourselves in that story, and then Jesus' words, you're forgiven, I love you. What happens to those words? We cling to them because we can relate, because we've been in a position like that woman. This morning, even though we maybe can't relate to the exact situation of that farmer, we need to take seriously the warning that Jesus gives us. The warning is that greed destroys the soul. Why is it that Jesus is saying, be on guard against greed? This is really important. If you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 12. This morning we're going to use the whiteboard because I want to encourage you on Sunday mornings to take notes as we're talking about God's Word. I don't know what it is, but studies show that if you take notes, you're more engaged during the sermon and you actually apprehend more. I don't want to take notes because I'm not going to give a quiz on Wednesday or anything, or I'm not going to ask you to turn them in. But I believe it's beneficial for all of us to be engaged in the learning, write things down that might come to mind, a question that I want to consider later, or new information. But why is it that Jesus says, don't be greedy? A lot of times when we hear a command from God, we always think, well, God says it, okay, whatever, I'll do it just because God says so. A lot of times the desires that God reveals to us, there's really good reasoning behind them. And so if you look in Luke 12, I believe it's verse 15, Jesus says, be on your guard against covetousness, and then he gives the key word, for. So if you have your Bible, I just encourage you to circle that word 
for in verse 15. That word for is telling us, hey, I'm now going to give you the reason for why you should be on your guard against covetousness. So whenever you see the word for, especially in the New Testament, when you're reading the letters, just underline it. You can draw an arrow this way and an arrow that way because it's telling you that which you've seen before, I'm now going to give you the reason for it now. So why? Why does Jesus say, don't be greedy? He says this, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, don't want stuff because stuff doesn't give you life. Or in other words, Jesus is saying, hey, the good life, life is not accumulation of stuff. That's not what life is. You can have all of this stuff, but guess what? You don't have life. So in other words, Jesus is saying, hey, be on your guard against wanting more and more because guess what? It's not going to give you life. Actually, it does the exact opposite. Have you ever noticed when you've wanted something more and more, at some point, that thing that you wanted does what? Takes control of you. The extreme example is alcohol and drugs, but very close to a lot of our hearts and a lot of our families and a lot of us as individuals this morning. It comes to starts as something very simple. I, I want a drink. But at some point, what happens? The drink now controls you. That's true of alcohol, but it's also true of a lot of other stuff in life. Where all of a sudden, what? I want my neighbor to like me. Not a bad thing at all. But then what does it turn into? My neighbor liking me controls all of my behavior. Wanting something that can't give you life, Jesus wants to warn us against. Because the stuff that we want more and more can't give us life. Actually, that stuff then begins to control us. Then what happens? The created is controlling the creature rather than the creator controlling the creature. In the New Testament, you'll find some different verses that talk about covetousness or greed. And then it says, which is idolatry. Maybe you've seen that phrase, covetousness, which is idolatry. Well, why is covetousness idolatry? Covetousness is idolatry because when you're coveting, you're wanting something, you're wanting something to take the place of God. Idolatry is when you put a created thing in place of the Creator. So when we're coveting something, we're desiring that something take the place that only God can be in. So Jesus is saying, hey, 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 watch out. Be on your guard for greed. Why? Because stuff won't give you life. So then what is life? If stuff doesn't give us life, I think it's a good question to ask, well, what's the good life then? If the good life is not accumulation of stuff, what is the good life? What does life consist of? Turn with me to John chapter 17, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the very next book in the Bible, John chapter 17, verse 3. We want to know what life is, the life that we want. This verse right here just lays it right on the Mark, Jesus defines, eternal life defines life. John 17, verse 3. Jesus is in the middle of a prayer here, and he says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Or what is life? The word life and eternal life in the Gospels, you can interchange at many times. 
when Jesus says, you will have life, it's the same as saying, you will have eternal life. So what is eternal life? Eternal life is to know God. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, eternity has already begun for you. Eternal life is not something that starts when we die and then I begin my eternal life. No, eternal life begins today because what is eternal life? It's to know God. It's to be in relationship with the Creator. Our eternity has begun. Now, from now on as a follower of Christ, there's no end to this being. However, some of you may want there to be an end to this being. There is no end to this being now. I've started eternity because I know God. The same is true for all of you today who know Jesus Christ. Eternity has begun. It's not perfected yet. We don't know God in complete fullness. We don't understand everything yet. But eternal life is knowing God, and that has begun. So if life consists of knowing God, if that's the good life, if you get to the end and you're like, I've had the good life, according to the Bible, that means you've known God. That's the good life. So then it makes sense when Jesus says, hey, be on your guard against greed, wanting more stuff because what? Greed can't give you what? The good life. Only Jesus can give you the good life because through Christ we come to know the creator of the universe. Jesus gives us a fair warning. Be on your guard against wanting more and more and more. I think the question then becomes, how do we fight greed? How do we fight the desire to want more and more and more, better and better and better? How do we fight that? There's two ways that we can fight greed. Both are very difficult and both are not fun to talk about. The first way in which we fight greed is leave the comparison trap. This is one of the most dangerous things that a lot of us are stuck into in life a majority of the times. We compare ourselves to our neighbors, our co-workers, our friends, our family, and that's where we drive our value or our worth. If I asked you this morning, how many of you are greedy? Not many are probably going to raise their hands, even if we just have a moment of complete honesty. And then if we went around the room and I said, why didn't you raise your hand when I said, are you greedy? A lot of people would say, well, look at so-and-so. They've got way more stuff than I do. A lot of times what we do, we use other people as what? The measuring stick. How do we justify a lot of the stuff that we do? Well, I'm still doing better than them. In the Scriptures, in the Christian life, the measuring stick is never our neighbor. The measuring stick is Jesus Himself, who is the complete, perfect revelation of the will of God. When we fall into the comparison trap, three things happen. One, I get greedy for what they have. Two, I get prideful that I'm not living like them, so I'm doing well. Or three, I justify what I'm doing because of what someone else is doing. The comparison trap doesn't bring about anything healthy for anyone. This morning, who are you comparing yourself to? Are you comparing to a coworker? Are you comparing to a sister-in-law? Who are you comparing yourself to this morning? Because that's driving a lot of your inward desire of who you want to become and what you want to have. 
when we get in the, stuck in the comparison trap, greed flourishes. Who are you comparing yourself to? The second way that we fight greed this morning is the one that's really unfun to talk about, but is actually glorious. That is give, give, give. If we were serious about heeding the warning of Jesus this morning, about the extreme dangers of greed and covetousness, if we were serious about fighting it, we'd heed the rest of Jesus' message. To give, give, give. Now, this is where it gets a little bit prickly, right? Because, oh boy, here we go again, talking about money. Church always wants our money, da-da-da-da-da. Everybody's going to leave feeling guilty, not giving enough, or so-and-so's not pulling their weight, da-da-da-da-da. I got nothing I can say to that this morning. All, All I can say is this. God talks about money a lot in the Bible. The reason we talk about money is because God talks about it. We don't talk about money to pay the bills here. We talk about money because God puts it in His Word. We talk about money because many times money becomes something more than paper or gold. And really, that's what money is at the end of the day. It's paper. But oftentimes it becomes something much more than that, which we see here is why Jesus is addressing it in Luke chapter 12. I think it's great that we get to talk about money because money does good stuff. Money brings good things to people who are hurting. Money can bring encouragement by bringing clean water or food to those who haven't had it before. Money establishes churches in northern China where they've never heard the gospel before. We should not be ashamed at all as a church to say, we want more money because we want to do God-sized things. And God's got it all already. We, we want people who are managing God's stuff to use it for God's stuff. If we want to fight this danger of greed, we've got to learn to give, give, give. And so this morning I want to take a few moments and help us understand the Christian understanding of giving. My hope this morning is that we don't all leave here going, oh boy, I feel horrible, feel bad for about a half an hour, then eat at the restaurant, watch some football, and by tomorrow morning it's all gone. My hope today is to give us some very practical understanding of how we can be the people God has created us to be. How we can experience the life God wants us to have. The concept of giving starts with the concept in the Bible what's called the tithe. The tithe, the word literally means a tenth. The tithe starts at the very beginning of the Bible. We may not, you may not realize this, but the tithe didn't come when the law was first given. The law is what Moses received through the Ten Commandments and other writings that we find in the book of Leviticus and other places. The tithe started in the book of Genesis chapter 14, way before the law was ever given. The tithe started when Abraham returned from a battle, and when he returns from a battle, the high priest is there, and the high priest gives a praise to God, and then what does Abraham do? Abraham says, I want to give you a tithe a tenth of everything I brought back with me. And then the priest says, whoa, no, I don't want the possessions. But then Moses sa- or Abraham says, hey, I've spoken to God, the God who provided all of this. Here's a tenth. So the tithe isn't some just legal obligation for one group of people thousands of years ago. It's a principle that God has put into place for all time. 
So the tithe started with Abraham, and then it got written in the law. And it got written in the law. And if you have your Bibles, I want to point this out because this helps us understand what the tithe truly is. Leviticus chapter 27. Beginning of your Bibles, a book that most of us have never read, and just, just be honest, this is extremely boring. Leviticus chapter 27, verse 30. Leviticus 27, verse 30. right in the middle of the law here that God's giving the people of Israel. He says, Every tithe of the land, tenth of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. The concept of the tithe is more than just a gift. The tithe is based in the fact that what? It is the Lord's. Notice what it says there about the holiness, that the tenth has been set apart. Why has it been set apart? Because it's God's. So I'm saying that this here I'm setting apart specifically for the use of God and His kingdom and His purposes. The tithe is not just God like, oh, i got to come up with a number here, which I demand that people give today. No, God's saying, hey, this tenth is holy to me. The first tenth of anything all of us make, guess what, is holy to God. Why? Why is the first tenth holy to God? Because the second piece of tithing we have to understand is it's first fruits. The concept of the tithe was always related to first fruits. The tithe was always the first tenth that came in. So if I'm making wine from grapes, the first tenth of the grape harvest that came in goes to the temple. Why? Because it's holy to the Lord. The first tenth is that sign, is that reminder that everything that comes after is what? God's as well. That's why I give the first tenth because I'm saying, God, it's all yours. So here's the first tenth. I'm trusting what? You're going to bring the rest. Tithing, a lot of times we think of this as a, as a legal thing that's only in the Old Testament, but at the foundation of tithing and the concept of first fruits, and it is the Lord, is, is the concept of faith. It, this is huge. I would contend that faith giving is bigger in the Old Testament than it is in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what am I doing? I'm saying, God, here's the first 10. I'm trusting now that you're going to bring the rest. And guess what? It wasn't just 10% in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, each year the tithe would have averaged out to be 23 and a third percent. Because there was three tithes every year. Three tithes. Two tithes that were collected every year. One tithe that was collected every third year. So at least 20% every year and then one year, 30%. Now some of you are getting really nervous. Where are you going here? All I'm doing is I'm trying to show here that the concept and the expectation and the desire that God had for His people. Now, it's different. These other two tithes are different because it was to a specific nation. Now, don't take this too far, but in a sense, it's like taxes. Because right? they were caring for, for the government in the sense of the nation of Israel with a portion of the tithe. So there is some differences that we have to distinguish. But the first tenth always went to the temple. So the basis of Christian giving is the concept that it is the Lord's, 
The first fruit belonged back to God as a recognition that it is the Lord's. And so now you might say, oh boy, that's nice that they've got that legal bounds in the Old Testament. It's really clear of how much to give. Actually, in the Old Testament, you had the tithe as God's people, and then you had voluntary giving above and beyond. So if you'll turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 35. It's before Leviticus, second book of the Bible. Exodus, chapter 35, verse 29. Exodus 35, verse 29. All the men and the women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. So well, the reason I want to point this out is not to be like, man, they gave a lot, we give a little, get your act together. No, I want to show the consistency of God. It's not like God in the Old Testament was like, hey, give me a tenth. Now in the New Testament, he's like, hey, give me whatever you want. I just want it to be cheerful now that it's in the New Testament. No, no, no. There was a desire for the cheerful gift all along here, that God wanted a free will gift from the very beginning. So in the New Testament, when we see in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul really starts to talk about giving, one of the main points that he drives home is he doesn't want us to give under compulsion, but with a cheerful heart. He's not introducing something new. This is consistent with all of Scripture. God's always wanted His people to willingly give for the good of others. There's always been voluntary giving. But God's always laid out at the exact same time an expectation, a desire. So this is, the giving starts with the understanding of of the tithe. The question then always becomes, well, is it required of us because we're not under the old covenant anymore? That's right, we're not under the old covenant anymore. If you've come to communion before, we say when we take communion, new covenant. We're under a new relationship after Jesus came. So then some of us go, ah, free! Well, let's think about this a little bit. The old covenant was established by the sacrifice of animals, coming and offering that in prayers for their wrongdoing. The new covenant is established by the sacrifice of God's Son. And in the old covenant that's established by animal sacrifice, if God desires this, and in the new covenant that's established by the blood of Jesus, His only Son, Do you really think God would lower this with what he did to establish the new covenant? The point, again, is not to make us all feel guilty, like, oh, boy, wow. But it's more to drive our hearts and our minds to a place that says, God, move me to the maximum of investing in your kingdom, rather than being in the position that says, God, what what do I have to do here? Because if I'm in this position, what do I have to do here? I'm seeing it as a transaction to earn the favor of God. Giving, even from the very beginning, was never a transaction that earned the favor of God. Our giving is an outpouring of what God has done for us. You know what giving does? It fights the greed. Because there's a string, you can't see it, there's a string from your heart to your wallet. 
I don't say this. Jesus says this. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. Jesus tells the story, and then he goes on a little bit longer about this issue of of, uh, being afraid and trusting that God's going to provide. Luke 12, verse 34. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. There's a string between your wallet and your soul. Your wallet has got great power over your soul. But also, your soul can direct your wallet in powerful, powerful ways. So what do we do? There's a warning that Jesus has for us. This morning, I want to encourage us to think very practically for a minute because all of this can cause us to go, oh, I'm nowhere near that. Uh, God, I just can't do it. God, we got a lot of stuff going on. Because let's be honest for a second as well, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot going on in our lives, right? I mean, it's not easy right now. Healthcare costs are going up. Cost of living is increasing. Wages are pretty much stagnant. I don't mean to get into an economic talk here, but I want to be realistic as well and understand what's going on in our society as a whole. It's not an easy goal. There's a lot of pressure, right? You're, my child who's four is already asking for a cell phone. Okay, but let's be honest about the pressure that that brings to families. It brings a lot of pressure throughout all of life in different ways. So we're under a lot of pressure. The pressure we face is real. So the question is, what can we do to fight against this pressure? Remember when I was talking about rust earlier and the fact of living in the Midwest forces us to be even more diligent in our car washing? The fact that we live in the richest nation in the world, no matter how much we're struggling right now, it's just staggering the statistics. Make us what? We've got to be more diligent than ever in our disciplines to protect against greed. So this morning, I want to lay a challenge out for all of us. Myself included, I'm in the same camp. I want you to draw three circles. This is not between me and you. This is between you and your spouse, your family, and God. Your first circle, how much money do you make a week? This might be $350. Let's say it's $400 a week. Total income for your household, how much money do you make a week? Let's not get into the gross or the net thing. Whatever you want to take, take. thing. Okay, now be very honest because most of the time, here we go, most people are not honest with themselves when it comes to this. Nobody's looking. Nobody's judging you today. Your membership's not in question. This is all about the, soul of, the health of our soul. How much am I giving every week? Just put the number down. Well, how much am I giving every week? Is it $13? Is it $5? Whatever it is. I'm giving this amount right now, every week. Third circle. What does God want me to be giving every week? This is where it becomes really tricky. And you can start talking yourself into all sorts of fun things. But let me just remind us of the story that we've seen unfold in the Bible, where God has got a principle that He's laid out of first fruits giving. I would contend that the baseline is 10%. So let's say God wants us at $40 a week. I could look at this, and, and that's a pretty substantial difference. Here's the danger, folks. 
Most of us right here are right here, and this is what we do. We fall back into number one thing of the comparison trap. So if I look at the percentages around the, around the country, that's, I can't figure it. Anybody figure out these percentages of the $413? How much? 3%? Okay, 3%. I'm actually doing pretty well compared to the rest of the, wor- rest of the country. Presidential candidates just released their finances in the last week. Most of them were at 1.8. It's not about them, but that shows us what usually happens is this. We go, oh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm doing better than billionaire Trump. 3 to 1.8. Guess what? Donald Trump is not the measuring stick. Your neighbor's not the measuring stick. God's Word is the measuring stick. I share this, and I challenge us on this, to move us beyond looking horizontally like this to looking to the provider up here like this. So what do we do? There's one, leave feeling terribly guilty. It's not the point at all. Feel, leave, arguing against me in the car the whole way home. Or leave, and maybe all of us could say, I'm going to take a step of obedience this next week. I'm going to do what's right before me. So I believe over the next year what should happen in all of our lives is this. We should add a dollar a week until we get to where God wants us to be. If I'm at $13 this week, next week I'm not going to 40 Don't even take the thought and the conversation there. Stop right now. It won't happen. Take the step of obedience that's before you. God's not worried about what's behind you. You are new in Christ Jesus. God's not worried if you're going to be obedient 10 steps down the road. He's worried, are you going to be obedient right now? So what if we all took one obedient step this next week? I'm going 13 to 14. I can do that. I can go 13 to 14. Next week, I can give $14 to God's kingdom. Maybe it's $7 to King of Glory and $7 to missions in Mongolia. I don't know. The church is big and broad. But I can take a step of obedience. The next week, I'm going to take another step. I'm going from 14 to 15. And what am I doing? All along here, as I take one step of obedience every week, what am I doing? I'm building discipline. I'm building in a practice that will ultimately protect me from greed. But it takes a step of obedience every single week. This next week, are you willing to take a step of obedience? 13 to 14, 25 to 26, 50 to 51, whatever it might be, 0 to 1. It doesn't matter the amount. What matters is the step of obedience of saying, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to provide this next week. I'm putting it out there. This kind of sermon is really dangerous. People leave churches because of this kind of stuff. It's dangerous talking about money. People get offended. It's a lot more dangerous to ignore the warning of Jesus Christ who says greed destroys our souls. 
What's dangerous is if you and I did not give consideration to taking a step of obedience today, of honoring God with what God has first given to us. I've really been wrestling lately with the point of the offering in the worship service, and I've been thinking about this for a while of, should we even continue to have an offering in the worship service? And there's nowhere in the Bible where it says, have an offering directly. So I've been going back and forth. Should we have an offering, not have an offering? How should we, how should we do this? And I've been praying and, and reading the Bible and talking to others about how, do we, how should we do this? It comes back to this point is that we should keep an offering on Sunday morning because we need a reminder that this is not a due that I am paying, but I'm offering something back to God. I'm giving God to God. I'm saying, God, be honored by this. It's an act of worship. So this morning, we're gonna, we're, we've changed one thing in your bulletin. If you pull out your connection card in, in your bulletin this morning, I want to highlight something in there. Your connection, your, your connection card on the back of it, I believe, there's a spot that says, I give online. That's, that's on there, not because, oh, well, let's make sure we tell Rich each week who's giving online. That's not the point at all. The point is this, so that during that time of the service, you have a reminder, God, I'm giving to you this week. God, take back what is yours. So each week, if you give online, just check mark that as we're preparing for the offering as a simple reminder to your heart and an acknowledgement to God. I would encourage you, give online. Set it up where it's just automatically coming out, the first fruit, coming right out to God. Boom, boom, boom. This morning, you might be going, oh, man, it's all about money. I I can't know how to say this to convince you. It's, It's not about money at all. It's not about paying the light bill. It's about our souls. It's about fighting for the health of our souls, so guess what? We can save other souls. And if we fight for the health of our souls, and if we're healthy in this area, guess what? God's going to use us in mighty ways to expand His kingdom in northern China, in Jamaica, and here in Sioux Falls. The question this morning is not, which circle, what does circle two say? The question is this, How's the health of your soul? How's the health of your soul this morning? God wants it to be healthy because He wants you to have the good life. The good life is being in relationship with Him. Let us pray. Gracious God, forgive me if I've said anything too harshly this morning. And God, I ask that you would nurture my heart and all of our hearts in this this room. I ask that you'd nurture us, Lord, to a position where we hear your voice in this tough topic. Grant us understanding, Lord, of how to handle our stuff, how to handle our money. And Lord, I pray now for a spirit of obedience in my heart and the heart of each person that's gathered here today. God, I ask that today, you would create 150 obedient steps this next week. That your name would be glorified in us and through us. God, we offer ourselves unto you for your name's sake. 
Amen.